So as we thought about the meaning of doomsday, what does that mean? What other threats are there out there that might pose similar kinds of dangers? And climate change was very clear. In January, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists decided to move its historic doomsday clock forward by two minutes. The jump was brought on by growing concerns about climate change and the lack of progress in nuclear disarmament. The clock now sits the closest to midnight it's been since 1984. Here to talk about why is Kanet Benedict. She's the executive director and publisher of the Bulletin and a lecturer at Chicago Harris. Kanet, thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. We'll hear what Doomsday might look like in 2015 and beyond, and why Kinnett thinks there's still reason for hope. The bulletin was started in 1945 by scientists who'd been involved with building the first atomic bomb at Los Alamos Laboratory at the end of World War II. Uh, they were scientists who'd come, many of them from the University of Chicago, and had gone to Los Alamos and then came back. And after the bombs were dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, really felt that the public should know about this very dangerous technology. Um, they had been working uh, in secret with the military and with our government. And um, as they began to understand the, the extraordinary power of this new technology, they felt that, especially in a democracy, that people should know about it and be able to participate in making decisions about how it should be used in the future. Mm-hmm. And I guess, was there some guilt involved, do you think, for having created this technology? in addition to just trying to inform society? Well, you have to remember that during World War II, we were fighting the Germans who were intent on taking over the world. The Germans had the information about the bomb. In fact, the first articles about fission were, were uh, published in the journal in Berlin in 1939. So German scientists knew about it, Russian scientists, Japanese. It was really something that was known by the international scientific community. Mm-hmm. So um, many of the people who worked on the bomb actually had emigrated from Europe and had been driven out by Hitler. And they were very afraid that Hitler would get the bomb first and that the Germans would take over the world and, and it would be the end of what they saw as Western civilization. So they were really afraid and felt that this was an opportunity with the United States to make sure that we got the bomb before Germany did. So they worked very hard to make it happen. But even after the end of the German war uh, effort in 1945, they still continued because I think there was a fascination. Could they actually make this happen? Could they apply the physics that they knew theoretically into something that would be applied with such enormous power? So they did continue. But, you know, in June of 1945, even before the first uh, test, many of the scientists here at the University of Chicago wrote a memo to the president saying, please don't use this on civilians. Do a test somewhere in the Pacific, have the Japanese leaders come, have them look at it and know the power of this thing. It'd be so much better for humanity if you wouldn't you know, test it by actually using it on civilians. So even before the end of the war, they knew what this was about. And um, yeah, maybe some guilt. I think the times had changed, and but they really understood the power of this more than more than anybody else would. Right. And what brought you to the bulletin? 
Well, I had been working at the MacArthur Foundation for a number of years. I headed the Peace and Security Program there and had been working with a lot of the scientists who published in the bulletin. Uh, we were funding the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, the foundation was, and um, I'd been very interested in, in, in finding better ways for scientists and experts to communicate to a general public. This has always been a problem, um, and the Bulletin had been working on it for about 60 years by that time. But I felt that we could do more with that, and we could do more with the doomsday clock, which set from time to time without too much elaboration about the reasons for setting, moving the hand of the clock. So I thought that we could use this communications instrument vehicle um, more intensively, and um, so those were my two main goals when I came, to mm -hmm. convey uh, the science, which is robust, to a lay audience, and then second, to, to help get the public aware by using this doomsday clock. Huh. So the clock had been pretty stationary for, for a while, or just there wasn't much movement? There was movement of the hand, but no big press conferences, oh. no media events, um, no elaborate statements. It was moved, there would be mention of it in the magazine, but they really didn't see it as something that could be used to really reach out to a huge audience. Well, the doomsday clock, an ominous symbol of apparent dangers facing the world, is now two minutes closer to doom. A survey of trends by the publication Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. The Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. A group of prominent atomic scientists. Has placed the current time as three minutes to midnight. Joining us now to explain why the world is a less safe place is connected. Benedict, Executive Director of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. Welcome to Chicago tonight. Thank you very much. For and where did just the idea the for the clock icon actually come from? Her name is Martil Langsdorf. Um, she, uh, she died um, about a year ago. She was married to um, Alexander Langsdorf, who was a physicist who also worked on the Manhattan Project. Uh, and um, she was an artist in her own right from St. Louis. Uh, came to be here with him at the University of Chicago. And uh, one of the editors at the time, Hyman Goldsmith, wanted to turn the bulletin from a newsletter into a magazine. So he wanted a cover, and he wanted a design for the cover. And he came to her, you know, she was kind of in the mix, and said, um, well, you know, I can't pay you much of anything, but could you think you could come up with a design? And um, her story is that she's, you know, thought about the uranium symbol or, you know, other kinds of scientific symbols. But as she listened to all these people sitting around in their living rooms here in, on the campus, they had huge debates about the nuclear capabilities and nuclear weapons and what to do with them. The president gave money for the bulletin. He commended the scientists on raising these issues. So she was in that mix, and what she felt from all of that was the urgency that these scientists felt about controlling this dreadful, dreadful technology. And so the idea of a clock came to her mind. The countdown to an explosion was first used in exploding nuclear weapons, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6. Hmm. Uh, was first used, I guess, for the Trinity explosion. So it combined several different elements of the, the, the nuclear world and the nuclear danger. When uh, it was first used on the cover, the other editor of the bulletin, Eugene Rabinowicz, said it had become the clock of doom. 
And I think that's perhaps where the idea of doomsday clock came. It was, I think it was probably the media that thought of it as a doomsday clock. We've since just um, picked it up and decided that it has a certain quality of gravitas, so we use it too. But it's meant to be a clock to warn people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it's served us well. So tell me about how the decision to move the clock gets made. Um, Yeah, we um, talk about the clock a lot, all the time. The Science and Security Board meets twice a year, and uh, we have presentations, briefings by members of the board, and then a really very full-throated, robust discussion about the the state of world affairs. Um, And who's on the 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 Science and Security Board. We have climate scientists from uh, Scripps Oceanographic Institute, from the University of Chicago, from the Stockholm Environment Institute. We have experts on nuclear weapons from Stanford and Princeton and mostly independent scientists who are looking at these issues not with from within the government or from within any particular industry. They're physicists, chemists, um, political scientists, people who have make this their life's work essentially. Mm -hmm. We also have on our board of sponsors uh, 16 Nobel laureates, many of them very knowledgeable, obviously, about the science, but also committed and passionate about the policy uh, consequences of the technologies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we we really go around the room. We try and the the board tries to make these decisions by consensus. Uh, So we keep going round and round and round until we come to come to agreement about whether or not to move the hand and by how many minutes. After the end of the Cold War, obviously, people thought that we would get rid of these nuclear weapons. Um, We haven't. So that still remains on our agenda and still pretty high on our agenda. Mm -hmm. But as we looked around at other threats to humanity, it became clear that climate change is accelerating, that the science is getting much better, and that we really need to work quickly and with international cooperation to really do something about climate change. So as we thought about the meaning of doomsday, what does that mean? Does that really mean the end of, of the world? Is it the end of civilization, as the, as the first atomic scientist thought? Uh, what other threats are there out there uh, that are technologies that scientists know about, have helped create, that might pose similar kinds of dangers? And climate change was very clear at that time. I think that it was uh, 2005 and six that we had very deep discussions. And then in 2007, we added it formally to the deliberations about setting the hand of the clock. Mm-hmm. And in January... The decision was made to move the clock two minutes forward, so now it sits at three minutes till doomsday, three minutes till midnight. Right. Which is the closest it's been to midnight since 1984. That's correct. And the only other time it was closer was when hydrogen bombs were first tested by us in Russia, is that right? That's correct. The Soviet Union then, yes, in in 1953, long time ago. It was at two minutes to midnight. Mm -hmm. And at that point, the scientists were thinking, not only is this evidence that we could really develop this super terrible bomb, the hydrogen bomb, but it was the beginning of the arms race. 
It was um, an acceleration of a kind of fearful cycle of bombs, better bombs, by the U.S. and the Soviet Union at the time. And there wasn't much communication between our two countries. There really wasn't much in the way of discussion. Stalin was in power then, Eisenhower here, uh, and really not much in the way of negotiations or talking. Many of the scientists who are involved with the bulletin also were involved with organizations like Pugwash, which was an attempt to bring together scientists from Soviet Union, from Japan, from Europe, the United States, to talk about the threats from nuclear weapons. So in tandem with this public outreach publication, the scientists also were involved themselves in talking to their counterparts in the Soviet Union to try and figure out how to come to some agreement to, to uh, you know, to kind of dampen down the fear that was driving the arms race. Mm-hmm. So I had the sense that people were maybe a little surprised that the most recent movement brought us to that series of a point again. Have you, have you, have you found that, that people were more surprised this time than in the past? Or is that just me? Uh, some may be surprised. I think that the deterioration of relations between the U.S. and Russia now over Ukraine, mm-hmm. I think, has been a concern of many people. We know that. And people have written to us, as they often do, saying, you know, this is happening. Are you going to move the hand of the clock? So not everybody, I think, was surprised. But I think what people don't fully understand is how many nuclear weapons we still have. We still have 16,300 worldwide, most of them in the possession of Russia and the United States, by Mm -hmm. far. Uh, Just for mm -hmm. comparison, how many... I have no conception of how many that is, sort of, you know. Yeah, right, of course What's not. the most we ever had? Yeah. The most we've ever had was at the at the height of the Cold War in 1987, and the estimates are we had about 65,000 nuclear okay. weapons. So we've made tremendous progress in this uh, time, 25 years, and in fact, we're jointly dismantling these weapons with the Russians. So the U.S. and Russia... A cooperative threat reduction program funded by our government was helping to reduce this vast, these vast arsenals so that we're now down to about uh, a little more than 16,000. Okay. Just to give you a sense of the power of these weapons, uh, each uh, average about 300 kilotons uh, yield on these weapons. The yield of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs were somewhere around 1.5 kilotons. So the enormity of these weapons is just unfathomable, really. And uh, we haven't done any atmospheric testing for many, many years, so people haven't really seen them lately, but you can go on YouTube and look at these things. They're really vastly powerful. So we still have many of these weapons. And, And the other part of the nuclear weapons complex is that the U.S. and Russia still haven't stood down from our Cold War posture. Each of us has about 800 of these weapons on the top of missiles ready to be launched within 10 minutes of a command. So we are poised really every minute of every day to have a nuclear war. It's not quite clear why we need to maintain this force posture, as it's called. And um, many people have called attention to it. Um, It's difficult. It can be destabilizing if you don't do it 
kind of in tandem together. But it really does mean that we're ready to launch our missiles if we see one coming towards us. In other words, we don't even wait for it to land here, as the Russians wouldn't wait for ours to land there, because that means we'd lose missiles in that process because they've aimed theirs at ours and ours at theirs. So what you want to do is make sure you get yours out of their silos before they're destroyed. So that means you look on the radar continuously and look to see whether there are missiles heading towards you. And um, if you see one or some, you're certainly in your rights to launch one even before it hits your own territory. So this is a pretty, a pretty dicey situation, we think, and it needs much more attention. Just because we don't have the political hostilities that we had doesn't mean there can't be an accident an unauthorized launch, uh, or even a misperception. And we've had some of those where mm -hmm. the other, either we or the Russians believe that the other side has actually sent missiles in our direction, and it's taken acts of courage or uh, almost by accident, some clear-headed person to say, well, wait a minute, no, let's, no, this can't be happening. Um, as recently as 1995. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we just need to, uh, be conscious that these technologies are being used every day, and um, we need people to know about it so that they can tell their leaders that they're not interested in, in being the victims of genocide, nor are we interested in being perpetrators of genocide. And if these weapons go off, that's what we'll have. retiring this year? Right? As a matter of fact, yes, uh, at the end of this month, I will be retiring from the uh, bulletin. I've been here about nine years and uh, have seen a tremendous uh, transformation, I would say, of the bulletin and also much more interest in the clock. I'm really gratified by that, that people seem to understand that this clock, which seems so simple, really, and to some may seem like a gimmick or something is Reductive. really dead serious and uh, we need to get people's attention and sometimes it's hard with arcane issues about you know hair trigger alerts and force posture and nuclear and climate change and how many parts per million of co2 there are in the atmosphere sometimes it's hard to get people's attention um, but the clock um, especially this time has proven to be really helpful in getting people to kind of be aware, and then to start asking questions. And that's, the, that's what we really are looking for. Mm -hmm. Especially this time, in, in what way? Well, I think this time in the sense that we've come through a period of a lack of curiosity about climate, about science, a growing distrust of scientific evidence. And uh, I think we may be just beginning to turn that corner, where people are beginning to say, wait a minute here, you know, maybe there's something going on. Maybe these uh, extreme storms mean something. Who do we turn to? Who can we turn to who can help us understand this a little bit more? Glaciers melting in Antarctica, in the Alps, many places. I just saw in the paper the Iditarod in Alaska has to move 300 miles north because they don't have enough snow. The conditions aren't right for the running of the sleds with the dogs. So all of people are beginning to observe what's happening. And and they want to know now 
now why and what can be done to, to mitigate, to prevent maybe the worst things from happening. So I think the clock uh, speaks to them because they see that there's something going on and they can come to the bulletin and we'll tell them in plain language what the risks are and what they can do about it. Mm-hmm. And in plain language, what does midnight look like nowadays? Paint that picture for us. <laughs> we're not quite sure how it might happen, but the risks we're running from nuclear weapons, not only the ones we have now, but as we think into future generations, the possibility that in order to, to deal with climate change, for instance, people will want to build more nuclear reactors. And the technologies that we have for that mean we run the risk of more nuclear weapons in the hands of all, all nations and even those who are not in, uh, in charge of governments but maybe extremist radicals who want to do damage. Because in order to make the fuel for nuclear power plants, you need to enrich the uranium. And the very same technologies that can enrich uranium can also be used to enrich it high enough to become much more volatile and useful for a nuclear bomb. Mm -hmm. So we haven't figured out, and Iran is a good example of that, we haven't figured out how we're going to solve that problem. So we could see an exchange, for instance, of nuclear weapons in South Asia between India and Pakistan. Mm -hmm. As few as 50 to 100 would not only destroy the people there and the countries, but might likely produce a worldwide famine because the earth would cool for about a decade from all the ash and soot that goes up into the atmosphere. So that would be one way that we would see a very distinct change in, and, and uh, certainly uh, hunger, uh, more conflict, a very different world. Sea level rise, I think we now understand that there most likely will be three feet of sea level rise over the next 30, 40, 50 years. That means that many of the island nations will be gone. In fact, they're already applying for refugee status in other countries. Florida, I hope you don't have a home down there, but Florida, parts of it are going to be underwater, literally. So people will be moving and, you know, figuring out how to deal with that. Places like Bangladesh, which are already very low, are already suffering. People are having to move. Where are they going to move to? Who's going to take them in? So the kind of cascading effects of all these things are not absolutely crystal clear, but we can imagine that this pretty we're pretty well suited to this habitat. If that changes drastically, then, yeah, we're going to see a lot of conflict, misery, suffering, and um, governments doing things to civil liberties range of things that we may not like. That's the end of our way of life, essentially. That's how devastating these weapons are. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty heavy duty to be the woman in charge of warning the world about its imminent doom. Has it been taxing? Uh, Well, it's uh, difficult to think about the the, uh, consequences of these technologies every day. But I work with tremendous colleagues, and that, I think, is what gives me the most hope and some pleasure, actually. The people on our boards are very committed, extremely knowledgeable and expert, 
and have been working in many ways, including in their own positions, trying to get policymakers to understand the consequences of their actions or lack of actions in some cases. And um, yes, it's challenging and it's serious work. There's no question about it. But I guess I feel like we are really in the midst of something extraordinarily important. And I can't think of anything really more important than trying to save humanity from itself. Is there a piece of advice that you think your successor would benefit from knowing Mm -hmm. or following? Um, Not any particular wisdom, but I... All this time, I have been inspired by the example of those first scientists who thought to put together a group to use their imaginations to hire a young artist, Martil Langsdorff, to come up with a design of the clock and to, to have great courage. They were followed by the FBI. They were called communists because they believed that government should not keep secrets from people in a democracy. Their publication was banned from the Soviet Union. They fought that ban, and they made sure that the bulletin continued to be published and distributed in the Soviet Union. So they were quite courageous. They didn't care much what their careers were going to look like, who was going to like them or not. They did what they thought was right, and I I think that example sticks with me, and I, and I hope it would stick with the next leaders of the bulletin, that this is n- not a, uh, an organization for the faint-hearted, that this is really an organization where you want to be on the leading edge of thinking and of action. Mm-hmm. People can make changes when they work together. We saw that in the uh, 1980s with the disarmament movement then. I really think that that helped change the world, bring about the end of the Cold War. In the 1950s, people came out and marched when they found uh, strontium-90 in babies' teeth from atmospheric testing. People came out and marched and said, we don't want this anymore. This is dangerous, too dangerous for us, and you need to change. So, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much an optimist, and, I'm a, and I believe that uh, in a democracy, you can make things change. And you don't have to be president, and you don't have to be a CEO of a major corporation. If you can come together with people who think and uh, want to act like you do, you can actually make things happen and make the world a better place. And so to be involved with this organization and and with a symbol which is so important and has such power to get people's attention, it's just a tremendous privilege. Um, You know, there's no real private sector initiative that's going to take care of nuclear weapons. (laughs) We need people interested in government and interested in international cooperation to solve the problems that we have. And uh, I think to be here at the University of Chicago, as we are, the Bulletin is, based here, and for me to be able to teach courses which reach people who will serve in those positions in the future, I think that um, gives me, you know, some sense of optimism. Mm-hmm. But I think eventually, uh, you know, I, I may be too optimistic here, but there certainly is enough media commentary about money and politics, and I think people may just begin to get tired of seeing elections essentially bought. And um, not sure how it'll change, but um, my bet is it will, and for the better. Kenneth okay. Benedict, thank you so much for joining me today. It was a pleasure, Jake. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to this atomic episode of Radio Harris. If you have not heard, we are now on iTunes and Stitcher. Please like us, share with a friend, and of course, subscribe. This episode was produced by me, Jake Smith, with music from A Smile from Timbuktu, Bimyo, and Manu Srivastava. Until next time, this is Radio Harris.